Turn with me to John chapter 4, and I'm, a, I'm making a certain assumption this morning that, that most of you, maybe a few of you aren't, that most of you are pretty familiar with this passage. But I'm going to read it, and, um, and what I'm going to ask you to do is, as we work through it, I'm not going to go verse by verse, but as we work through it, I'm going to ask you to think. I'm going to ask you to think with me about this woman, who she was, the interchange between her and, and Christ, and what really happened uh, there. Uh, so so we'll, we'll kind of go at it that way. So if, if you will, hear um, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. I'll pick it up at, at verse 1. <clears throat> now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria, that's about noon, by the way. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him, uh, that I I will give him, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we, what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, I will tell, he will tell us all, all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'll pick up a verse or two later on in line of the passage, but let me stop at, at, at that point. Um, let's, let's pray together as, as we come to the God's word. Father, we are grateful that you have chosen to love us. 
though really none of us deserve your love. None of us deserve your care. And yet, Lord, you created us for yourself, and though we have turned away from you, you've drawn us back. Father, we're thankful for that. We're thankful, Lord, that you caused words to be written down in such a way that we would have your word and your revelation to us. As we look at this passage this morning, Lord, and as we think about this woman and the interaction that Jesus had with her, we pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself, perhaps in a new way to some of us, but maybe in a deeper way to all of us. Lord, that we might know you, that we might know your love and your grace and your mercy, particularly in relationship to many times our failure and our faults. Help us, Lord, to know that you still love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, I I want you to kind of think with me about her, who she was, what was driving her life, and in essence, how this interaction with Jesus affected her. Um, So who was she? Um, The first thing that we learn uh, about her is that she was a despised person from a despised race and of a despised gender. Um, despised, uh, d- despised person. Uh, if you look at verse 6 and, and at 42, you can look at both of them if you want. But it indicates that she, she, it was the sixth hour. She came at noon, the middle of the day, the heat of the day, to draw water. She comes alone. When normally uh, that would women come and women had the, had the primary responsibility of drawing water for their households, when would they normally come? Well, it was usually in the cool of the day, in the morning. And I think it's a fair assumption that, to draw, or fair implication to draw, that her coming at noon in the middle of the day indicated her rejection from society. Okay? So she's coming at an in, inopportune time, really, to, to do this. She was despised. Why was she despised? Well, because in one sense, this is probably an overstatement, but she was uh, a disrespected person, maybe a woman of disrepute. She wasn't exactly a prostitute, but she'd had five husbands, five failed marriages, and now she's living with a man who's not her husband. That would be regarded as immoral even within Samaritan society. So she was one of those people. Okay, uh, I imagine her as hard, probably embittered, Probably with a good bit of attitude. In fact, her interaction with Jesus, I think, is fascinating in, in so many ways. She is not timid in this, in, in this interchange at, at all. But she was a despised person. Secondly, she was from a despised race. Verse 7 says that she was a Samaritan. And then we get this explanatory note that Jews didn't have anything to do with Samaritans. They regarded them as half-breeds. I guess that's, that's our understanding of, of the text. But whatever they were, you think, um, and maybe this is... Uh, uh, um, not exactly the case, but think of interacting with maybe somebody that's a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or, or someone from uh, another kind of cultic, you know, kind of a, a thought. That would be the, the thought that Jews would have. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, something's wrong with, 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 with your thinking. So, so not only was it a racial thing that they were half-breeds, but actually it was also a problem of theology and, 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 and belief. Um, and, and Jews would not receive any food or drink from a Samaritan. They wouldn't ask. And they also wouldn't talk 
to a Samaritan for the for the most part. But the the third thing is she, she was from a despised gender. She was a woman. Now it's it's really I think kind of amazing that um, we have a very different view of women in our society today. And I think a careful analysis of history and that sort of thing, the only really thing that we contribute attribute to the change in the view of women today is really Jesus and Christianity. It was Christ who elevated women to their appropriate uh, position in, in society. So rather than being thought of being slaves or something along that lines, which oftentimes they, look, they were looked upon as chattel, and of course they were respected more than that in, in much of Jewish society, but there was still kind of, it was the men, and then the women did their own thing. And the women did much of the hard work, that sort of thing. There's actually a prayer that used to be said by uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, Jewish men in times past, and I've, I've been told that it is still said today. And the, sh- the prayer is pretty shocking, but here's, it, it includes these words. Thank you that I am not a slave. This was said every morning. Thank you that I am not a slave, not a Gentile, and not a woman. And I think those are meant to be progressively more negative. Okay? If you were a Jew and a slave, okay, that's not a great thing. If you were a Gentile, it meant you were outside the faith. But to be a woman, you know, heaven forbid. I mean, I think that's the right, the right reading of, of that prayer. That, I think it just goes to the illustration of how women were regarded in society. And yet, what we find is, when the disciples come back, here he is conversing with a woman. Which I, I find to be pretty amazing. The, the, the second thing I think we learn about her is that she was proud, skeptical, and intelligent. Um, look at verse 9, if, 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 if you will. Let me reread it to you. It's always interesting using a different Bible. But um, anymore, I don't, I don't carry a Bible with me. I have it on my phone, but I, can't, <laughs> I don't feel comfortable reading the Bible from my phone as, as I preach. So I picked up one of these this morning. But, but, but look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, after he's just asked her for a drink, How is it that you, a Jew... Ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman. Now, I don't know if I'm reading it right, but I read resentment and attitude in that voice. You know, in that in in in, in what she what was she saying? She she was a proud woman. She was not going to accept being looked down upon. You know, by a Jewish rabbi, and she he actually she actually calls him a rabbi at at, at, at one point. But in fact, she 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 I think she seems to be saying, "You think you're better than us." And yet you ask me for a drink? Uh, but she's also skeptical. Uh, if you look at verse 11, let me pick up that one as, as well there. Um, the woman said to him, uh, so he's, he's saying that, um, uh, that he could have given her living water. And the woman says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that, that living water? And then she goes on, Are you greater than our father Jacob? Etc., etc. But she's interact with them. You're saying you're going to give me the living water, but I, I don't believe it. You're here without even a rope or a bucket or anything to draw the water with. Where, where are you going to get it, get it from? So she, she's not ready to accept very quickly uh, what, what, he, what he's saying to her. And then what she, what she ends up saying is, then give it to me. If you can, if you can give me this water, it's, it's kind of a demand. Prove it. Give it to me. She does not believe that he can deliver on the province. 
and yet uh, she's also intelligent. Uh, you can look at verse 19 if you will. I won't, I won't pause to read that one. But she's an extremely intelligent woman uh, on any number of counts. Do you, uh, there was a point at which um, there was a church in Budapest, Hungary, that um, an individual, um, uh, uh, a young guy, was trying to replant. And uh, the church had a long history. It was over 100 years old. It seated about 650 people, and they had about 100, 100 people in it. And when he went to the church, from what he could tell, none of the elders were real believers in Christ. They were church people, but they, they weren't real believers. And none of the people in the church. And so he decided to uh, create a program that was similar to Alpha. Uh, now, he wasn't charismatic, so he kind of translated into Hungarian and eliminated some of the charisma, uh, charismatic elements of it. And he was preaching, or he, he was using this course to evangelize people. And... Um, at one point, uh, they were into the fourth week. A guy that had introduced himself the first week as Attila, literally Attila the Hun, not quite that, but, uh, but, uh, but Attila, he was a Hungarian. But he had introduced himself as an atheist, and he was a lawyer who was a lawyer for the prime minister. He, he, he was the lead lawyer on the staff uh, for the prime minister of, of the country. So he, they were going to get married to the church, so they'd been invited to this course he decided to come because they were, you know, meet, meet other young couples. And it would be interesting to hear a little bit about Christianity. But he said, I don't believe any of this. I, I think it's all foolishness. But, I, but we thought it would be interesting. So the fourth night, David becomes ill. So they would have a dinner. They would have some singing. And then there would be this presentation and discussion kind of a thing. Well, in between the dinner, sometime during the singing and before the presentation, David became very ill and literally almost doubling over with pain. His wife is standing next to him, Myrtle is, 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 is her name, and, uh, and, and, uh, and their flat is, was immediately next door the, to the room that they were using. And he turns to Myrtle and he says, Myrtle, you've got to teach this. And he was going to teach on the woman at the well passage, John chapter 4. And, uh, and Myrtle's flustered. She's not a teacher. She's not a preacher or you know, anything like that. And what am I going to do? Well, Attila is standing there. And he said, here, let me, let me look at these things. This is four weeks into this course, okay? And he looks at it, and he said, I can teach this. So Miracle, okay, whatever. Later on, Miracle said it was one of the best expositions of John chapter 4 she'd ever heard in her life. Because it, at, at even a quick reading, this lawyer was sharp enough to see exactly what she was doing. As Jesus begins to put his finger on sinner life, what does she do? Well, you say that we should worship in this mountain, and we worship in this other, you know, she's introducing theological controversy. You know, she's not ignorant, but also she's sharp. You know, and, and she, she's figuring out how to deflect the conversation. By the way, Attila, the seventh week, bends the knee to Christ and becomes a believer. <laughs> Every time I tell the story, I get choked up. Because it's an amazing story. But here a guy comes from, from raging unbelief to belief in seven weeks' time. You know, uh, just kind of amazing thing. But so this woman is sharp. She's intelligent. And, and think about this a little bit. She has had five husbands. And the man she's living with now, she's refusing to marry him. You've got to be pretty sharp in order to get five guys to marry you. Okay? <laughs> and, she, and she's a position, I don't want this guy, you know, uh, you know to, 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 be, to be my husband. She's probably street smart is, 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 is what, what you might want to call it. She was probably beautiful at, at one point, and maybe she still is. I mean, we have no idea what she looked like, but, uh, but uh, really interesting. Third thing, though, that we learn about her is, and, it, and uh, you see it in verse 15, 
You see it in some of the other, uh, uh, you see it in verse 17 as well. But she seems weary, tired, worn out. And when he confronts her, you know, you've been married to five and the one you're with now, you know, I have no husband. I think she's both weary and she's emotionally alone. You know, there are, there are so many people in our society today that feel both those things. They don't know which way to turn, and maybe they've been dealing with all kinds of financial problems, they've been dealing with emotional problems, or maybe they've been in and out of jail for different reasons, or, or whatever. But many, many, many people in our society feel alone, utterly alone. And they're tired. And they feel like there's nowhere else to go. I think this woman is like that. She's isolated, tired, alone. Nothing's ever worked. You know, her life has been full of disappointment. And I think the, the feeling, is the, the reaction to that is, I don't need a man. I was, I'd always hoped that a man would fulfill what I really needed. That someone would take care of me, that would love me as I really am. But I've been disappointed at all these different points. So I don't need a man. I'm going to do my own thing. And I don't care that all the villagers despise me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be my own person. And so she comes with attitude. So now much has been made by a lot of preachers, I think, about the dissimilarities between this woman and us. But actually, I think that we're more like this woman than what we might want to think. Now, we may not, we may not be on the hard-bitten side of life. Plenty of people are. I mean, maybe you've made some money and... Maybe you're well-educated, maybe you have a nice family, and, and, and that sort of thing. But all she wanted, she, she really wanted the same things we all want. We all want to be loved by somebody. To both be known and to be loved. We all want to survive. We want to be able to raise our children in relative security. We want, to, want them to, to thrive. You know, we, we all have those same hopes and dreams. So she's really not that far apart from, from, from any of us. And I find that to be, to be interesting. And uh, so, so let me ask you, and, and this is a question that I want to ask you in, 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 in a different way, but let me ask you this. What was driving her life? What was it, and, and you're going to be way ahead of me, I, I realize this, but that's okay. What was it that she thought would make her life work? If I could only earn a PhD, yes, then I would be regarded as smart enough, I would have the credibility, I'd make enough money or whatever. If I could only get this position, this job, that, that would work. Or if I could only, I, I don't know what those only things are, but, it, but I think in her case, uh, at least early on, if I could only find the right man, and, and this is kind of the American dream, by the way. Almost every romantic movie I, I see, and I'm a sucker for romantic movies, I almost <laughs> always cry anymore. <laughs> it's really bad. But, but we desperately want that right woman you shop around the corner what was the movie called um, uh, you've got mail and Tom Hanks and uh, who's the Meg, Meg Ryan they come together to the end and they found each other and this is really going to you know this going to be life uh, you know happily ever after type thing we all really kind of think that particularly when we're young and maybe even when we're older that's that's that's, that's we hope for I think that that's what she thought would make her life work. And she marries one, and I don't know if he abused her or, or what took place there, but that one goes, there's another one, there's a failure after failure after failure after failure. 
And finally now, she's not even willing to be married. She's given up, given up hope. Um, you know, that's, that, that's, that, I think what was driving her life was her gospel. Let me put it that way. Her gospel was, if you could only find that person to love you, that would, that would make everything work. It may sound strange for you to you know, hear that described as a gospel, but, but in essence, we all believe in a certain gospel. We may believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which I think ultimately can really meet our deepest longings, that kind of thing. But we all believe in a certain gospel. You know, when I was 18, I was converted, by the way, right up the road at Florida Atlantic University. Came from a pagan back, background and uh, came to Christ. But my gospel back then, I wouldn't have thought of it this way, was I was going to be a high-priced attorney, and I was going to marry a beautiful woman, and I was going to live happily ever after. That's what I thought would really make my life work. My life began to go in a different direction, and I realized those dreams probably weren't going to come true. I did marry a beautiful woman. I never became that attorney, and maybe, thank God, I didn't. You know, but, but, the, but the reality was that my dreams weren't going to come true. And actually, even, even if they did come true, they wouldn't have actually satisfied the innermost needs. So her gospel, I think, was finding a, uh, finding a man. That was, what, that was what, in essence, were, were, was driving, uh, driving her, her life. Um, one of the uh, individuals that came to Christ in New York uh, was an interesting story. His name was, his name is Howard Levy. Howard was 47 years old, uh, Jewish, accountant, um, had a horrible stuttering problem, and so all of his life he felt like he was despised by other people. You know, was always getting in the way of things, and he was one of these really kind of bitter ind- individuals. And at one point. Um, uh, Howard ended up coming to the church that we that we were planning there. He ends up, you know, coming to know Christ, and it changed his 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 life, you know, just incredible ways. But uh, so he had just made a commitment to Christ. Just it was just before Christmas that year, and about two weeks later, we're advertising that we're going to have a new members class for anybody who wants to join the church. So Howard calls me up, and and he and Maggie had both prayed uh, prayed to receive Christ. Uh, about December 23rd, I think it was, something like that. It was a great Christmas present, I, I thought. But he calls me up and says, hey, can we become members and, and come to the class? And I said, sure, we'd love to have you. you know? so, so there was a couple weeks before they were going to start. And, and the, the, the day that the, that the class was going to be held, it was, a, it was Wednesday nights, Howard calls, calls me up in the morning and he said, Alec, can Maggie and I come and talk to you, you know, before the meeting tonight? And I said, sure. He said, it's, it's rather important. So he, uh, I said, sure, come at 6 o'clock. The class was at 7. We'd be able to chat a little bit, that kind of thing. They come in, and Maggie's kind of tearful, and they're both very sober. And, and uh, Howard is stuttering, stammering, and he's you know, trying to tell me this thing, and, and, and I'm, I'm trying to help him to whatever degree I can. But anyways, here, he lays out this problem. His former gospel was he was going to make a whole lot of money, and here's how he was going to do it. In fact, the next day, that Thursday, he and a partner of his were going to launch a um, pornographic internet site that was promising to yield him roughly two million dollars in income a month, personal income. Okay, so he, so he's like out the story. <laughs> Tell me the whole thing. So he comes to the the end of his story. He says, "So here's what I want to know: Is this going to be a problem for membership?" And, <laughs> and and I literally laughed, actually, you know. <laughs> and I said, I said, Howard, listen, membership membership's not not the issue, you know. Let, let, what did he say? I didn't hear. 
um, he, uh, uh, let's see, what, what he said was he was going to launch a pornographic internet site. It was promising to yield two million. He said, uh, is this going to be a problem for membership? <laughs> okay. And I said, membership's not the issue. You know, let, let's, let's go back over several things. Remember several weeks ago when you guys both received Christ. What was involved in that? Well, it was uh, repenting from all known sin. It was trusting in Christ and promising to follow him to the best of your ability. So a Christian can't be involved in blatant sin. I mean, all of us will, will fall at, at different times, but you can't do it. Well, he said, it's not sin. And I said, what do you mean it's not sin? And he said, well, I, you know, I'm just an accountant. You know, all I do is I deal with credit cards and phone numbers, and I don't have everything to do with the artwork. That's what he says. <laughs> okay. So we argued for about 30 minutes, and he got progressively more angry, you know, because this was going to be his ticket out of Long Island, out of the drudgery of the, of the accountant business. He and, he and Maggie are birders. They wanted to travel the world and identify birds and this kind of thing. By the way, that's the number one hobby in the world. I didn't know that until then. But, uh, but so we worked kind of through the process. Anyways, it's a much longer story than that. The, the end of the story is that he decides not to be involved in that business. And we were able to baptize him. Um, and he, later on, he gave a testimony before the church, which was just amazing. But his gospel was to make enough money to free him from the oppressive Long Island, New York environment. You know, we all have gospels of, uh, of, of one sort or another, but they may just take different, different forms. Um, now, the, the irony for her, and really for all of us, is that there's a song actually about the woman of the well, but the things of earth do not satisfy. You know, the things of earth actually are not, not bad. Okay, so it's actually really great. If you can find a good husband or wife, if you can make a decent living, you know, if you can get a good education, if, if uh, children are a joy, you know, these kinds of things, all those things can add to the joys of life and they can lessen the difficulties of life. But if you rely upon any of those things, they ultimately will fail. In fact, if you rely upon those things, to satisfy your, your innermost longings, you will crush those things. You'll crush the marriage. You'll ruin your children. You'll actually, many times, ruin, ruin your business. You know, uh, We had one guy there. This is a, a wealthy place. I'm probably going on too long. But um, we had, uh, you know, this was, at one point, the wealthiest area of the world that we, were living, that we were working in, the North Shore of Long Island. And one spring, there was a guy that got a bonus from his company of $365 million. So not his salary, but that's a bonus, you know. Now later, he ended up giving 1.5 million to the church. So we were able to buy an old building and rehab it and that kind of thing. So we had a place to to meet. But about three years later, he went to prison. So even though he was incredibly wealthy, he needed more, or felt like he needed more, not for material issues, but for power and credibility and that kind of thing. So he manipulates the stock in order to get that 365 million dollar bonus. Okay, you know. So even when you get it all, actually doesn't satisfy you know that that's that, that that's a real problem let me let, let me press on a, a bit um, so let me ask you what happened at the well that day how did the interaction of Jesus affect her and I think there's a very interesting statement in verses 39 through 41 so I didn't read this to you before but let me let me let me pick it up there 39 and 41 many Samaritans so, so the woman has has now um, gone into the city and to share to share with them what has gone on and she says basically i met a man who's told me everything i ever did 
Okay, which is really interesting. I mean, he, she, he hadn't told her that much. But he obviously had revealed that he knew. He knew her in a way that she didn't think anybody knew her, probably. Uh, but anyways, in verse 39 and 41, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to this woman, It's no longer because of, of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What happened at that well to, to, uh, that day? She came to believe in Christ. She came to believe in Christ. You, you have this whole interaction between her and Jesus, you know, and, and he's kind of narrowing in on the, uh, on the reality of, of, of what's going on in her life. But what's fascinating to me, and I think this is verse 24. Let me make sure it's that. No, verse 26. But let me pick it up at, um, at verse 25. So they're, they're in this kind of theological argument. And then a woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let me, let me, let me narrow in on that just a little bit. In that statement is the gospel. You know, it's not Jesus died for your sins, and if you believe in him, then you can have everlasting life. You know, that's a different formulation of the gospel elsewhere. But he, he knows that her gospel was, if I could only find that one true husband. And essentially in this statement, Jesus is offering himself to her as that true husband. I'm the one you're looking for. Not this, not a man in your society. But I can be that to you. You know, he, and she does, he doesn't ask her to pray a prayer or do any of the kind of things that, that have become commonplace in our kind of evangelical way of, of discussing these things. But she comes to real belief in him. A belief that is so stunning that she leaves her water jar there and she runs into the village to people that despise her and say, you've got to come. You, you've got to meet him. Here, here's a man who told me everything, everything I ever did. This, this is Messiah. And they're, I think, skeptical. But they come out. And indeed, they find exactly who, 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 who she said. But her life is transformed at, at this moment. And it's basically because of this primary thing. The one that you're looking for, I'm he. It's me. The gospel ultimately is, is, is Jesus Christ. You know, the gospel that we, uh, that we preach is basically that Jesus is willing to receive anyone that will come to him. No life is too far gone. There's no shame that can't be overcome. There's no guilt. You know, I, I, I really don't know most of you. I mean, I've met a few of you uh, over the last year or so, but, but I really don't know you. So I don't really know what's happening in your heart or life or whatever. But my guess is <clears throat> that one or more of you may have been raped as a child or terribly abused. And you may feel like, I'm not worthy enough to be loved, let alone by a person, or, or by a person, let alone by God him, Himself. Or maybe you feel like you failed as a father, or as a business person, or you know something else. I mean, we all, we all fail in, in any number of ways. You may not feel like you're good enough. Now, you may not be quite this person, you know, that person that was despised. You know, you're somewhere this side of it. But here's the reality: is that God is willing to accept you. In fact, He He, he has. 
he's kind of front-loaded it, okay? He decided to accept you before even you knew who you were. Um, you know, it, I, I think one of the, the, the most amazing things in the world, and I think the thing that we all long for, and, and if you disagree, feel free to dis- disagree with me, but I think we all long uh, to be loved. But the problem is, is that we often do things to try to make people love us by not revealing who who really are. And here's the irony. To not be known and to be loved is kind of empty. We fear that if, if, if people really knew who I was, they wouldn't love me. But when somebody really knows you and they love you, that, that gives you life, that gives you hope, that gives you meaning. So here Jesus says, go call your husband. You've had five of them. How did he know that? I mean, he, he knew her before she was born, okay? But he knew her, and he chose to love her. That's what causes the joy. That's what causes the excitement. That's what causes, in essence, her, her testimony, if you will. You know, we, we all get kind of afraid. We're for, afraid to evangelize for fear that we're going to be thought a religious fanatic or we're not going to be able to answer a question or whatever. Here she is running into a village, and she's saying, you got to come. you you, you got to see. It's because she's just experienced what we all so desperately want, to actually be known and loved. He knew me, knew me more than even I know myself. And, and, and yet, 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 he loved me. Uh, that's what happens to the well. That's what, that's what changes her, in effect. Let me, let me tell one more story, and then I'm done. Um, we were helping to plant a church out on the, end of, uh, the east end of, of uh, Long Island in a place called Southampton. Some of you may know the Hamptons. And uh, there was a couple in the church that had both come to Christ in the city, through Redeemer's uh, ministry, and Mary Ellen was the, was the woman's name, and and uh, so they were kind of the core couple in the core group. By the way, let me let me, let me say one thing before I, I continue that story. What you guys are doing here, it's literally happening all over the world. That people are forming communities to, of of believers to uh, try to really help one another figure out how to follow Christ and to worship Him together, and then to extend the love of God to other people, both through the Word as well as through mercy and justice and, and those kinds of things. When you, when you bring a church into being, <clears throat> which is what you're doing in this process, you bring it into being something that could last 100 years or 200 years or, or, or even longer. If you, if you do it right, if you, if you form it biblically, you bring into being a living organism that the Holy Spirit has promised to indwell. This is God's chosen means of extending His kingdom, of, of, of proclaiming the gospel, of, pr- of proving that it's real. Okay, so so that that's what's going on here. So Mary Ellen had come to Christ somehow in New York. I'd never heard her testimony or whatever. And at one point, I asked Mary Mary Ellen, I said, "Will you just tell me your story?" She said, "Oh yeah, I'd be glad to tell you tell you the story." And she said, well, "You know, I was a bond broker down in Wall Street, and there was probably thirty or forty of us in, in in the office." At times things would go quiet, and when things were quiet, you talk about you know where you ate recently, or the movie you saw, or you might talk about uh, politics. Anymore, you almost can't talk about politics in New York either side of it. <laughs> you know, but and sometimes you, we'd even talk about religion. You know, and there was this one guy in the office. His name was Chip. There was this one guy in the office that was a believer, a Christian, but he was one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet. 
I hope you catch that, okay? So believers in New York at that time were thought to be fanatics that you did not want to be around. They were pushy, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, you didn't want to talk to a born-again, one of those born-agains, okay? And Chip was that, you know. But Chip always had the most interesting perspectives on our conversations. So from time to time, and she had been, uh, she had been, um, she had gone through communion at, at, at uh, in a Roman Catholic city church situation when she was seven, and then they left the church, and, and she never, she never went again. But she had all these questions and whatever. So I would go at times. I would go to Chip, and I would ask him about some of the questions I had. How can there be a God if there's suffering, you know, throughout the world? Or what about this question? You know, it's, it's there's only about ten apologetic questions, so you have to figure out what the answers are to, and, and you just have to figure out what what question they're asking. But anyways. You know, I would go to Chip, and he would he would try to answer the questions, but sometimes he didn't have great answers. And at one point, he said, "You know, Marilyn, you, I think you just need to come to the church I've been going to." And she said, and "He said it's not it's not your typical church. You know, they meet in a college auditorium, you know, and and you know, I the, the guy that speaks there he answers these kinds of questions uh, all the time and much better than I can. So because he she trusted Chip, she said okay. So she came the next Sunday evening." And evenings really worked for New Yorkers because they don't get up early in the morning and stay out late at night, that sort of thing. But, but she came and she brought three of her girlfriends as kind of protection. You know, she didn't want to be in kind of this cultic thing or, or whatever. But so the four of them are there, and then they go out to a bar afterwards to get a drink, and they ended up talking about what Tim had said in the message. And I said, okay, great. You know, you know. But what, what were your first impressions? She said, well, it was really. It was really interesting. I mean, the music was fine and all that kind of thing, you know. And but when he got up to speak, it was it was interesting. It's, at times, it was somewhat funny, but it was also profoundly disturbing. He's going at heart issues, you know, all, all, all the time. And so when we went out, we couldn't help but talk about what he, what he said. Okay, so so then what happened? Well, I ended up going back the next week. In fact, I ended up going for about three months, and there was a group of nine of us that went together, you know, every Sunday night. And we'd always go out for a, out to a bar to get a drink afterwards, you know. And and we every time we ended up talking uh, talking about what Tim had talked about in the message, never intending to, but but we would talk about. It, and sometimes we'd even argue about it. You'd argue about it. And she's oh yeah yeah. In fact, one time we almost got thrown out of the bar. I said really. <laughs> so you know why? And he said well, there's one guy there, and he was furious at what Tim had said. He was absolutely livid. So he is he's arguing with the eight of us, the eight other non Christians. Are arguing with the with the, the ninth Christian, the not the ninth uh, non-Christian, basically doing apologetics, you know, telling him he was he was wrong. But what Tim had done is he, he essentially had described, um, here is what you actually believe, and he did what I was alluding to earlier. What is the thing that you think is actually going to, you know, make, make your life worth worth living, you know? And he said that's really your idol, or that's really your gospel. And he was showing how each one of those actually will fall short. And that the only plausible alternative is really to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he said, so he was saying, that's not what I believe. You, know, you can't tell me that that's what I believe, you know, on, on the one side. And so all these other, other non-Christians, they were arguing so loudly that they almost got thrown out of the bar. So, so I said, okay, so, so tell me the end of the story. Well, after three months of going, I feel like Tim had e- essentially either answered my objections, or he had set aside the objection I had in such a way that I could no longer believe that Jesus was just a good teacher or 
that he was a philosopher or you know any of those kinds. Of, it was kind of the Lord liar lunatic. I'm sure that you guys have heard that kind of thing. That either he was a liar, he was lying about, he was a lunatic, he was nuts, or maybe he really was who he said he was. And I felt like Tim had kind of removed all those things, so I felt like I was standing face to face with Jesus, and I had to make a decision about that. And the case was so compelling that I bent the knee to Christ. So the last diff- most difficult thing for me was, and you got to understand this from kind of a uh, left-leaning New Yorker. She said the, 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 the last obstacle for me was I knew that to become a Christian, I would have to align myself with Pat Robertson, Benny Hinn, James Dobson, <laughs> somebody else. And, 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 I forget, I forget the other one. and then, the, then the last one was George Bush. And from her perspective, all those, and this is what she said, those people were cultural terrorists. Okay? So she would have to step over and, and literally, I'm a sister to these folks. And now, you, you know, you all may have great opinions of, of, of those people. She didn't. Okay? But Christ was so compelling. And that's, that's what we find in the story here. This woman is confronted with a real Christ. A Jewish rabbi that had despised her and her race, that she had every reason to hate. And yet, he reveals a love to her that is overwhelming. So whether you're a non-Christian today, you may, you may not have come to the place at which you really trusted Christ, or you're a believer, and you've been relying on something else as your gospel, we need to come back to the, this, re, this reality. Jesus is the one who can satisfy your deepest longings, not only grant you everlasting life, which is unbelievable, but actually affect your existence now. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful that you love us and that you sent Jesus not only to die for our sins, which we almost can't comprehend, but to reveal yourself to us so that we can see who you are in a story like this, so that we can come to know you. Lord, I pray that all of us would either come back to you or seek you further or come to you this morning that we might know you, your love, your grace, and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.